Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardio nerds, welcome to this very first of a brand new program, the joint ACC Cardio nerds narratives and cardiology series developed to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is a collaboration between the Cardio nerds, the Pennsylvania ACC chapter, and the fellows in training section. We want to thank our project mentors, Dr. Katie Burlacher, who's the president of the Pennsylvania State Chapter, and Dr. Noshin Riza, who's the immediate past chair for the FIT section. Their roles as mentors, advisors, allies have been instrumental, certainly for this project, but also for Cardi nerds in general. So Dr. Burlacher and Dr. Riza, we cannot thank you enough for all you've done for us. Dr. Zarina Sharlaya is an interventional cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic and is helping us study this project's impact. So thank you, Zarina. We also thank Jennifer Ray Beckman, the Pennsylvania State Chapter's executive, and Holly Regner, the chapter's project and program lead, for tremendous administrative support in making this a reality. We would never have gotten off the ground without their support. And we want to especially recognize Dr. Pamela Douglas for encouraging and empowering us cardiologists to deliberately talk about and promote this important topic. Friends, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit relevant. Speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. So with that, my friends, join us in the coming months on Air Force Cardio Nerds as we travel from state to state, learning from inspiring faculty and trainees representing different backgrounds, discussing topics they're passionate about and their personal narratives. Cardio nerds, let's fly to the Massachusetts ACC chapter. And please stay tuned for an important message at the end from the governor, Dr. Melissa Wood. Hey, Dan, before we land, how's the weather over there? Well, um, it's a beautiful cloudy day with a high of 53 and a low of 46. Perfect for a nice hot chocolate. Folks, please fasten your seatbelts as we prepare for the runway. For this very special and first of its kind session, I am thrilled to welcome the fellows leading this discussion. Dr. Pablo Sanchez is a general cardiology fellow and cardio nerds ambassador from Stanford University. And Dr. Maria Pabon is a general cardiology fellow and cardio nerds ambassador from Brigham and Women's Hospital. Pablo and Maria, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for helping us kick off this amazing series. No, thank you. I am so, so, so excited to be here, especially in such great company. Yeah, I I mean, getting to catch up with one of my mentors talking about a very important topic among the a lovely cardio nerds family. I'm just, I'm elated. So all of us are very excited to have Dr. Fidenzo Saldana as our faculty expert here. And I'll tell you a bit more about him. So Dr. Saldana is the Dean for Students at Harvard Medical School. He received his bachelor's degree from Stanford University and then moved to Boston where he obtained his medical degree from Harvard Medical School, then master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health. He was chief resident and cardiovascular medicine fellow at the Brigham Women's Hospital. He then went on to become faculty as a general cardiologist at the Brigham and was one of the associate program directors for the internal medicine program, where he was a tireless advocate and advisor for many residents, which is when I first met him. And additionally, a very important point faculty for minority recruitment efforts. At the medical school, he's had substantial commitment to diversity. He served as a faculty assistant dean for student affairs in the Office of Recruitment and Multicultural Affairs. He received the Excellence in Diversity and Inclusion Award from Harvard Medical School, as well as a Faculty Development and Diversity Pillow Award from the Brigham. He's been awarded recognitions from the AAMC for his mentorship and commitment to medical students. And I mean, the rest of his panoply of teaching and mentorship awards are too numerous to count, but needless to say that he's been a guiding light for legions of students, residents, and, and fellows under the Harvard Medical School umbrella, including myself. So welcome, Dr. Saldana. And before we go on, because we have very many interesting questions for you, I just wanted to share a short story about how I met Dr. Saldana. I am a first year fellow at the Brigham. So I just moved to Boston maybe, you know, a few months ago in the last summer. And as we all know, moving to a new city and a new hospital is tough. And imagine during a pandemic, it's even harder to get to know the people that work in the institution. Also, the cardiology department at the Brigham is huge, Pablo and Dr. Saldana know. So I am very ashamed to confess that I did not know of the existence of Dr. Saldana until one day he actually sent me an email just introducing himself and saying, 
hey, Maria, I know there are not very many Latinx physicians in cardiology, and I just wanted to reach out and say hello. And that email meant a lot to me as Latina and as a trainee, because as you guys discussed in one of your prior episodes, you can't be what you can't see. And, you know, here it is, the Dean for Students reaching out to me to make sure I knew I was not alone in this path. After that, we went for a coffee, socially distanced coffee. Back then, he told me about his trajectory, gave me some career advice, put me in contact with Dr. Fatima Rodriguez, and that I got to meet her through Zoom and now has also become a huge role model for me. So I just wanted to share this story because I think that really speaks to the kind of man that he is. Thank you, Maria. I, I think I was probably more excited. Anytime that I, I see you know, a, a Latinx name that I don't know, I, I am just really thrilled that there is somebody else in this community. And it was really uh, amazing to be able to chat with you and to hear your story. And really proud to have you as part of the cardiology community, but more specifically the Brigham cardiology community. No, thank you. I'm so struck by, Maria, how you met Dr. Saldana. You know, I don't know what the typical schedule for a dean looks like, but I can't imagine that it's very flexible or very free. I know. Usually, like, you reach out to people and, you know, it's more like the trainee reaches out to a mentor or something. But this case was the opposite. Yeah, I think it really speaks to Dr. Saldana's warmth and commitment, which again is a recurring theme from everyone, Dr. Saldana, that we've heard about you from, whether it's Aldo Scanone or, you know, Jesse Holtzman and countless others. So it's really such an honor for us to join you here in Boston, Massachusetts. As you know, the Cardiner's Narratives is aimed at highlighting the power that diversity, really at all levels, in people's backgrounds, upbringing, philosophies, talents, the value it provides for everything we do in medicine with a capital M. I think maybe the best way to start this conversation is to provide the background solidifying the strength that diversity and inclusion provides. Putting aside the inalienable goals of personal and professional fulfillment and achievement, which is as much a right for minorities as it is for everyone else, the value to patient care will surely resonate with everyone. After all, this is our mantra, our raison d'etre. That's absolutely right, Ahmed. And I think here we all believe that having a diverse workforce is surely to positively impact our patients at multiple levels. So I would like to ask Dr. Saldana, what benefits do you see with improvement in Latinx representation within our workforce? Wonderful question. I think first and foremost, it's access and quality of care delivered. And when I think of these, I think we can think of statistics and think of how it affects the population as a whole, but sometimes thinking of one patient, you know, can really show you an example of that. And and I think back to one of my first patients that uh, I had as an attending, who was a woman from Puerto Rico who had had rheumatic heart disease. And she had been receiving clinical care, excellent clinical care by a colleague at our clinic and using an interpreter. But over the course of years, she had experienced some challenges and had not maybe visited as often as she should have and was really, at this point, almost debilitated by atrial arrhythmias. She had a triple valve disease with rheumatic heart disease affecting her mitral valve, her aortic valve, and her tricuspid valve. And she'd been offered interventions and surgeries, but things really weren't clicking very well for her. And my colleague referred her over to me and we chatted and, you know, the look on her face that I not only spoke her language, but I understood her culture. And and again, she was receiving very high quality care, but something about that connection that we had together, the sense of trust, I think that patients want to have of their physicians that really allows them to get the most out of that patient-doctor interaction. So we chatted, we developed a relationship, and very shortly, we sent her for triple valve surgery, and likely one of the best outcomes that I've ever seen within about seven days, no rehab, walking at home, doing very well, and she's done quite well since then. And I think, you know, that's an example of how having that connection with your patients, establishing that trust you know, sometimes it is a little bit more helpful or or that the patients can establish that trust with someone who is similar in culture to them. So I think that we can definitely apply that on a populational level where we're really here to take care of patients and, and to provide the highest quality of care. And I think increasing diversity in this way can increase the quality of care for patients. You know, similarly, having a diverse team, as we've seen with evidence from Google as well as others, really pushes people to a higher level in providing that higher quality of care and even being aware of issues. You know, as a Latinx physician, I think we can always try to infuse in comments or conversations with our colleagues things that are important to us or how to take care of particular population of patients. I recall even as a fellow where we would present patients, I think you can present multiple things. I presented this particular patient with rheumatic heart disease and atrial arrhythmias. 
where not only can you teach your colleagues and talk about the pathophysiology of uh, cardiovascular disease, but you can also inject issues of culture and how to take care of patients. And I think that's something that's incredibly important. And then also on the research front, you know, Maria mentioned Fatima, who was one of my mentees at Harvard Medical School and at Brigham, who has really developed an incredible research career that started when she was a resident and now is an attending, where she really is pushing the envelope of caring for patients of diverse backgrounds. And I think that increasing the diversity will increase studying those topics, but also the inclusion of a diverse population in clinical trials. I think as we've seen with the COVID vaccine, how important it is to really recruit a diverse population and how possible it really is. It's not diversity for diversity's sake, but it is diversity to improve the care of our patients. Just to follow up, because I think she's just wonderful. I was recently rotating at MGH because we do rotations at MGH too. And she was actually the guest speaker for Grand Rounds. And her talk was one of the most wonderful talks I've ever seen. And she talked about the Hispanic paradox, which is, you know, me as a Latina, I've never heard about. So she's teaching even, you know, our own people about our patients. So I think she's wonderful. She's definitely someone who deserves to be in this podcast as well. Now, I'll add something else about Fatima in that when I was interviewing for fellowship at Stanford, I had heard so much about Fatima. I mean, for those of you that don't know Fatima yet, you will eventually. And if you have, you know, walked through the halls of the Brigham, Fatima's name kind of reverberates through the halls because she's just a legend there. And I met her on my interview day. And as soon as I started talking to her and finally met her in person, I thought, oh my God, I just have to continue to meet with this woman because she's just amazing, has been a fantastic mentor while I've been here. To piggyback off of the research work that she's done, she just recently published a paper on circulation devoted to kind of delving into the issues of diversity and the stark differences in outcomes for patients from minority backgrounds, Black and Latinx patients, and how that despite after correcting for various different factors, patients from minority backgrounds end up having poorer outcomes or hospitalized at much higher rates. It's just an incredible, facile mentor and researcher and just a testament of how wonderful person she is and how wonderful the mentorship from Fidenzo Saldana can be. I just wanted to say that her name reverberates beyond the halls of the Brigham because I too have heard her name from multiple people, Pablo, from you included, but also from people outside this call. But I'm just thinking in my mind, Darka Saldana, like what this must feel like for you as somebody who's mentored her to hear her in this light. You know, I think it's just truly incredible. I think what we hope is that, you know, as an educator, is that our mentees will eventually be our bosses, right? I think there, there is probably no greater feeling than to just to see the success of your mentees and watch them blossom over the course of years. It is, you know, as a parent, it is akin to watching your child grow and develop. It really is truly an amazing feeling. And then to know the contribution that your mentees will make, you know, when we care for patients, you affect one life at a time. When you are an educator, when you teach, you mentor, you know, the effect you have on patients is, is exponential. So I think as another plug for this podcast, a career in medical education is also an extremely rewarding one. 100%. So maybe to bring us back a little bit, I think, you know, 100% agree with Fidencio. I think there's just a number of arguments that can be made for furthering the case of a diverse workforce. I mean, if you think about uh, arguments ranging from just advancing cultural competency, which we know has multiple salutary effects in the way that we treat our patients, working all the way to realizing the fact that having lasting impact necessitates changes from the top. And this means that there needs to be representation of medically trained people that are from minority backgrounds in state and local governments as well as health systems. So, I mean, there's just numerous arguments that you can make about why this is something that is important. This is also a perfect time to delve into the history behind increasing diversity in the healthcare workforce. I mean, certainly the jumping point was the late 1960s, where beforehand there was an astoundingly stark lack of diversity in medical school matriculation. I mean, and what made this even worse and more arresting was that it occurred despite an increasingly racially diverse population, similar to the way that it is now. So stemming from powerful catalysis from the civil rights movement, Title VII and Title VIII from the Public Health Services Act, which among many things provided grants to supply healthcare professions training, efforts by the AAMC, which includes the Project 3000 by 2000, which aimed to matriculate 3000 minority students into medical school by the year 2000, and then countless other organizations and individuals we end up finally seeing an uptick in the medical school matriculation of minority students, but this took decades and decades. Dr. Saldana, your path towards medicine was occurring right alongside this. So as a Latinx physician, what energized you at the time and what barriers did you need to overcome? 
Pablo, a, a fantastic question. I think that diversity has been thought of for years, and it just within the last, I think, 20 to 30 years, an effort has been made nationally, as you mentioned, by the AAMC, and of course, locally at our, our academic medical centers to truly increase the numbers. And I think we all wish they would be increasing at a faster rate, but it's been encouraging to see some forward progress. I think for me, what has been energizing as we've sort of been alluding to a little bit are interactions with people. And, you know, it may seem simple or uh, trivial, but I remember even as a medical student that even helping someone find directions to a particular part of the hospital in Spanish was energizing. Maybe as we'll get to later in the podcast, but for me, I, I went into medicine to help people like my parents. So my parents were both born in uh, small villages in central Mexico, neither had more than a third grade education. And for me growing up, I had this special power and that power was being able to speak English when my parents couldn't or when other people around couldn't. And that was something that really stuck with me, that I had this special talent that I could use to help others. And over the course of my career, whether it is a patient or a student or what have you, I think it's been the most energizing part of my career. And, you know, maybe to make it more granular to, to medicine and to my current role in medical education, I think seeing all patients is extremely energizing. I think it, we are very privileged to be able to enter someone's life and have really such an intimate relationship within a few seconds of meeting someone else, where we meet someone most vulnerable and we're able to provide some comfort, you know, not always a cure, but in a way to establish a, a sense of confidence from our patients that we have their best interests in mind and we'll take care of them. To me, that energy just gets multiplied when I see Spanish-speaking patients. It's that look that you get from your patients when they realize that you speak your language, that you understand their culture, and, you know, the comments that you get from patients saying, you know, you better not leave this clinic, you know, my last doctor left, and I want you to stay around until I, I no longer need to see you. It's just incredible. A lot of the Spanish-speaking patients also happen to be underserved and are of low SES, and, you know, the gifts you get from your patients, whether it's a fish or a Dominican bottle of Mama Juana, which is kind of a special rum or candies from the Dominican Republic, it is just incredibly energizing. You know, on the student side, I truly enjoy mentoring all students, but I hope that in my particular position that a student who's underrepresented can see me and think that, well, if this joker can do this job, of course, you know, I can do it. And, you know, very similarly, I have a box of thank you cards in my desk that students have written over the years. And I'm just a huge fan of the handwritten note. And I go back and read those. And that is incredibly energizing to know that you've touched the life of someone in a particular way in their medical training and have really played a role in their success. It is truly energizing. As far as some of the barriers, I think these are not uncommon to other physicians that are underrepresented in medicine, other physicians of color. I think of it maybe as not knowing the secret handshake or the hidden curriculum or being invited to a dinner party where you may not know the rules. You know, a couple of things struck me when I entered medical school in, in one of our first sessions. I remember a colleague referring to our professor by their first name. It was, I clearly remember it was Dr. Julian Seifter, who's since then been a wonderful colleague and mentor as well at Brigham and Women's Hospital as a nephrologist. But I, I saw my classmate go up to Dr. Seifter and he said, hey, Julian, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what is he doing? You know, especially within my parents' Mexican culture, you would never address your elder by their first name. And, you know, and to this day, there are some physicians that I can't call by their first name. But that was striking. And I said, this is a different world. Or, or even, you know, coming from a first generation background and realizing that, again, one of my wonderful classmates who's currently a physician at Children's Hospital, her grandfather had written uh, the immunology book. So I think that you wonder, how do I dress? You know, how do I speak up? What is my potential? What am, actually, am I allowed to do? Am I only allowed to be this particular type of doctor? And I think those are the initial barriers, I think, that many physicians of color, many underrepresented physicians may face. And my students and, and residents, when I say my students, I, the students that I've encountered have shared similar stories that may be a little bit of a, afraid to speak up and, and you're not quite sure if you belong or not. And some of that is more of an internal barrier, the imposter syndrome that, that we hear of often, where you wonder, do I belong here? Why am I here? Is it because of X or Y? 
But I think that more recently, and we've seen that there are other structural barriers. You know, there's the barriers of institutional racism that we may not have been as well aware of that do exist for everyone. And they may be hidden or they may not be so hidden. I think on a a few occasions, I I remember being asked to remove a tray from a patient's bedside. Nothing wrong with, with having that as your profession. But I think it is that sometimes that unconscious bias that occurs, and I have definitely heard it happen more to my African-American Black colleagues than it ever happened to me. But I think it just adds to that feeling of, do I belong here? And am I a part of, am I a part of this system? And I think not to leave it at that, but I think a way of helping to overcome that are through the help of mentors, of advisors, of sponsors, of even forums like this to really articulate that folks that are experiencing this are not alone and that there are forums and ways of being able to overcome those barriers. Dr. Saldana, I feel both energized and touched by the way you responded to that question. You know, Pablo asked you about barriers, but you know, you started off not talking about the barriers that you faced, but how you were empowered by the secret weapon, this talent, this, this unique drive that took root from your roots, from your parents, from the community around you, and how that informed how you approached your own training, you know, the reason why you became a doctor, you know, both for your patients as well as for your trainees. You know, it's amazing. I did hear what you said about the barriers, and it's unfortunate that anyone would feel like they're deprived of an opportunity or feel like they're any less than anyone else for any reason. You know, when I look at like Maria, Pablo, just working with them, I know they're going to be incredible leaders in whatever area they choose. What do you say to us as we grow and hopefully start mentoring others? How do we identify barriers that our students, our mentees are facing, and, and how do we help them bridge that gap so that way they can use their secret talents and drive and passion and weapons to excel? A fabulous question, but I think that it is very important to be able to identify these barriers. And I think first I'll start with a description of the leaky pipeline. And I think we've all heard of the leaky pipeline within STEM, within medicine, where the image really of a series of pipes that get smaller and smaller and smaller. And there's a leak from grade elementary school to high school to college to medicine, and it goes out to full professor. Yesterday, we had the privilege at Harvard Medical School to have Dr. David Brown, who's Associate Vice President and Associate Dean for Health Equity and Inclusion. And he had a different description of the pipeline that I think almost resonates with cardiovascular disease. So his wasn't a leaky pipeline, but it was a clogged pipeline. And and I'm going to say, equate it to cardiology, you know, they were clogged arteries. So it's not that students are kind of leaking out, but that there are clogs in the system is what Dr. Brown said, that are preventing students from moving forward. And, you know, one thing that he described that we really have seen in the last year, I think, is that of the structural institutional racism that exists that I think could be a big part of that clock. We think about recruiting at this point. How do we recruit talented cardiology faculty? How do we recruit talented cardiology fellows or, or talented medicine residents? And when we talk about that, I think many times we have many institutions recruiting for a very, the same small pool of students, right? So a lot of effort is placed on, well, let's diversify our fellowship. And I think we have to diversify fellowships. We have to diversify residency programs, but we have to go further downstream. And I think that's challenging for us as physicians because we're not necessarily experts in elementary education. But I think we do need to think about those social determinants of health and ensuring that individuals have adequate housing, adequate food, adequate education, and really building those educational systems to increase that pool from which we can choose and recruit students to enter STEM fields and to enter medicine, to be honest. We can support our institutions to do that. We can participate in programs that focus on the pipeline to one, as you had mentioned, though these young people, that there are people like them, and even with similar backgrounds, that they too can strive to do it. But I think we have to do even more than that, that we have to be able to provide them with the resources for success. And I think that will be a big theme uh, maybe that we'll chat about is that really at every level, we strive to ensure that we have a diverse set of college students and a diverse set of medical students and residents and fellows. But I think it's also just as important to ensure that we have the resources to ensure that those individuals that we've recruited and have done so hard to recruit continue to succeed. 
You know, Dr. Saldana, I love the analogy to the clogged artery. And as an interventional cardiology fellow, I also know that dealing with clogged arteries requires a true multidisciplinary and holistic approach, which is very apropos to what you're talking about, addressing the leaky pipeline problem. I was really just so impressed by Dr. Brown's analogy. And I think your analogy of really dealing with, with a clot, sometimes you need an atherectomy and uh, to, before you can treat your lesion. But then that's not enough, right? You, you're going to need your dual antiplatelet therapy. You're going to need continued follow-up. I think that you know, that that leaky pipeline is not as rich of a description, but maybe we'll have uh, Dr. Brown as as an otolaryngologist. Maybe I'll I'll convince him to use the cardiology analogy in his talk next. I think that would definitely work out quite well. Going back to the theme of this episode, celebrating Latinx representation in cardiology and really medicine, based on the most recent data from the U.S. Census Bureau, as of 2019, the Hispanic proportion of the U.S. population is about 18.5%. In contrast, a recent report by the AAMC showed that of around 22,000 medical school matriculants, only 11% are of Latinx background. Perhaps reassuringly, but I'm not so sure, there seems to be a numerical and proportional increase in representation from 9.8% in 2019. 17 to 11% most recently. Dr. Saldana, what do you see as encouraging about these numbers? Well, Dan, I think that anytime there's an increase in numbers, we have to be encouraged, but I think we can never rest on our laurels and say that this is enough. I, I feel that we really do need to continue to increase the number of students that we're seeing come through college, coming through medical school, again, all the way up to hopefully attendings and faculty. It gives me pause that we haven't increased it even more, that the rate of rise is not more impressive than it is. As I had mentioned before, we need to do a a better job of trying to increase the pool that we have very early on. We need to, I think, do more things as you're doing now when students are looking to see, well, what kind of careers do I have access to? to know that there are individuals with their particular background that have entered that particular career. There's also, I think, a little bit of maybe a misconception of what it takes to enter a career in medicine, and it may deter students from pursuing a career in medicine. You do have to have excellent grades and excellent scores, but one grade or or two that aren't perfect, or maybe a score that isn't in the 100th percentile, I think students need to know that is not the end of the possibility of pursuing a career in medicine. To be honest, I think really what it comes down to is the importance of having mentorship early on, you know, whether it is in high school, whether it is in college, to really be able to reveal what is the truth about pursuing a career in medicine, internal medicine, cardiology, and to be that person that can help someone navigate through that so that they can be successful. We'd like to tell our students that during orientation that our job is to help you succeed and it's your job to define that success. And we know we put up this slide of all of these incredible Harvard Medical School alumni that are doing great things you know, and at first it may seem that you you need to be like these folks, but I think it is, I would, in my ideal world, I would want everyone to know that what their potential is and that, you know, maybe being a physician is within their potential, but that they have the choice as to whether or not to pursue that. Not because they couldn't think they did it or they didn't have all the information, but you have all the information, what your potential is, and you make the conscious choice. And I, and I think now that many students are not making that conscious choice because they don't have all the information. So we may be losing some students that could potentially continue on in the pipeline that don't. So I think, you know, we've talked about a few things and it's multifaceted. It is about getting through those clogged arteries and opening up some of those barriers to improved education. Or maybe it is opening that up by improving mentorship or exposure to the field by providing the appropriate resources with the students that we're recruiting. I like to say that me applying to medical school and my daughter, if she decides to going and applying to medical school is very different. So the resources that I needed are going to be different as a first generation student whose parents didn't go to high school than my daughter who also happens to be Latinx, but has you know parents with Harvard degrees. So I think that it's important to have those kinds of resources along the way. And I'm hoping that there is a push both within grade school, high school, college to be able to provide those resources to students. Yeah, and I think you touched on a really important topic. And it's as one of my mentors at Cornell used to say, Dr. Morales, 
she said that this is a cascade, right? And and the goal is not just matriculation, but it's also nurturing, mentoring, and teaching. And I mean, we all have had difficult times during our training. You know, we continue to have difficult times. And I personally wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the support of my mentors and the committees that I belong to, the minority has stuff committees and all my peers that look like me and talk like me. So I would like to ask you in that sense, I know we talked a little bit about college and high school mentorship, but what can we do to provide a fertile ground for this in medical school and even in residency for people to join cardiology? Great question. Now, was that Susana Morales that was your mentor? Yes. Years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting her and being inspired by her as a med student, again, through these LMSA connections, you know, as we tell everyone this community is pretty small and you're going to run into each other. She's wonderful. She created a mentoring cascade at Cornell where she would pair senior faculty with fellows and residents and med students. And like we would have like groups of discussion and go over like what are, you know, most difficult times. And then you you would have like mentors from like one of my mentors was from OBGYN, like no one in my field, but someone that looked like me. And, you know, it was just wonderful. She's obviously wonderful. A great question. And again, I think it goes back to the way we care for patients. And if I think about one of my patients who passed away about probably about seven years ago now, he had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And of course, there's a prescribed goal-directed medical therapy that he should have been on but he wasn't able to adhere to a lot of it. And we could have said, you know, you have to take this. If you don't take it, you're not going to live that long. And we could have had a little bit of an antagonistic relationship, but you tailor your therapy to the particular patient in front of you. And I think that's what we need to do with our trainees as well. In medical school and now in residencies over the past five years, the idea of holistic admissions really has taken hold. As you know, holistic admissions is where you're really kind of the whole applicant where, yes, there are grades. Yes, there are board scores. But what is the environment or what is the system in which those grades occurred? Are they a first generation student? Are they a a recent immigrant? Were there financial issues? What was going on? So you really take the whole story. And one of my colleagues, Angel Palermo, who's the Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Icon Mount Sinai School of Medicine, has started to put forth this idea in the AAMC of, within our community, holistic student affairs. So yes, as we've alluded to during this talk, we recruit this diverse population. But I think that our institutions have to realize that we can't just stop there, that both at the medical student, at the residency level, at the fellowship level, that we really need to ensure that we're providing the resources for the students, residents, and fellows, even faculty in front of us. And think that that when I got my first job, I had a little bit of a holistic approach to my job in that my division looked at me and said, well, what's going to fulfill him and give me the support or fulfillment that I needed in my own career? And they knew that I spoke Spanish. I had a passion for Spanish-speaking patients so that they actually created a position in community health centers for me to see Spanish-speaking patients. So that's looking at the person in front of you, looking at the folks in front of you to say, what do we need to support this particular group and and ensure that their success? Hoping that that will slowly take hold, that we're able to provide, looking at who our students are and being able to provide, you know, the unique needs, whether it would be through a mentorship program of someone that's like them or a, a particular interest to be able to provide that support. You know, with that, I think I've realized that you can teach mentoring, you can teach advising, and I think it's important to be able to create that culture and expectation. And some people may be a little bit better at it than others, but I think it's important to place an emphasis on that at each level of training, that you can train to be a better mentor and a better advisor. And that really involves being able to reflect on who your particular mentee is and being able to bring out the best in them as well. Yeah, Fidencia, I want to piggyback on this idea of kind of tailored mentorship and dovetail into this next question. Now, in 2017, Dr. Deborah Weinstein and yourself co-authored a perspective in the New England Journal of Medicine, which focused on a particularly vulnerable group of trainees under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, or DACA. Now, at the time, the former administration had embarked on dissolution of the program, which would all but append the lives of 800,000 dreamers, some of which were medical trainees. 
Now, can you walk us through the context then? And then what did this signify of the vulnerability of Latinx trainees? And what was the responsibility of the teaching institutions that were facing this charge at the time? That was an incredibly challenging time. And it's challenging, I think, when you view it through the eyes of your students. And at the time, one of our first DACA students that I had the really privilege of mentoring, you just hear incredible stories of resilience where this particular mentee, as with many other DACA recipients, was brought over not by her own choosing, but with her family in search of a better life. You know, this particular mentee, her siblings were born in the United States and her parents were able to become documented in the United States, really leaving her as the only one in the family. And she was lucky to be able to study at her state university. And she hustled to the point where when a particular scholarship for undocumented students was about to be rescinded, she went all the way up to the president. And not only was she able to get funding back for herself, but also funding for her peers that were in a similar situation. You you hear the fear of getting pulled over for maybe running a stop sign and wondering if you're going to be deported as a result of that. You hear the fear of not being able to continue on to medical school despite all of the training that you've had as an undergrad and now finally making it to a place like Harvard Medical School and being so close and knowing that she's going to be able to serve an incredible number of patients and what an incredible doctor she would be. And the loss of that potential really is heartbreaking. And many others across the country were in similar situations. And, you know, the the fear is true. And it's not just the fear of not meeting your potential, but the fear of not being able to reside in this country. And that's why when Dr. Weinstein approached me to write this, it was something that was very important. I think that it's always important to be able to stand up and, and be the voice who didn't have a voice. And not that these students didn't have a voice, but you know that as physicians, you get these fancy titles and these fancy schools, and you realize that people will listen. For better or for worse, I'm at the privilege of being at Harvard Medical School, and I have a title that says Dean. And because of that, people may listen to what I have to say. And I took up the offer right away to collaborate with Deb and be able to write this and hope that because we came from an institution like Harvard, that people would hear our voice. And DACA students had their own voice. And and it was really amazing to be able to rally with our students to really speak it as one voice for all of them so that folks could realize the importance of who they were and to be able to advocate so that they could continue to contribute to our society in very important ways. Everyone, this might be a good time to then switch gears and head on to the narrative discussion, which is all about getting to know more about the leaders that inspire us. And, and on this particular day, it'll be Dr. Saldana. And for the live audience that is that is here with us, we welcome your questions for Dr. Saldana using the chat. For this portion, we're joined by Karen Malacón, who's a first-year MD-PhD student here at Stanford and one of the rising co-chairs of the LMSA chapter here. She's a native Californian near Los Angeles. She was valedictorian of her class. She went to Harvard College and studied neurobiology. She's now part of the medical scientist training program at Stanford. And like the rest of us, she's an ardent advocate for the cause. And I absolutely wanted to have her on with us. Also, as an aside, even though she's interested in the neurosciences, she said that she's a sponge and definitely open to the possibility of doing cardiology. So it's wonderful to have you here, Karen. This is our chance, Pablo. I'm not, I'm I'm taking the shot. I'm not missing. I will take another shot. I will say that at Brigham and Women's Hospital, there is an interesting thing that happens. On occasion, we have preliminary neurology interns. And for some reason, they magically get converted into cardiologists. So one of my co-chief residents, Dr. Amy Miller, who was such a neurology prelim back in the day, switched from not only just prelim, but to a categorical residency, and then actually went on to become my co-chief resident, a cardiology fellow, and an electrophysiologist. You know, so they both have those, those in common. So I think there, there still is hope for us to recruit Karen to our side. First off, thank you so much for that very warm introduction, Pablo. It truly is such an honor to be here and to be with all of you and to just, I just feel so inspired. We're actually doing our cardio block right now in medical school. So this has become my new favorite book, Rapid Interpretation of ECGs. And I'm finding a lot of similarities between the neuronal action potential and then the cardiac one. We have gap junctions. Neurology and synapses, we have gap junctions. Closer. (laughs) So I guess, Dr. Saldana, the first question I wanted to ask is, what was the moment when you decided that you could or would go and become a cardiologist? 
That is a great question. So I think I first became interested in cardiology as an undergraduate where I took a preventive cardiology course. And it was just, I found it very interesting. I, it was my senior year, I took it, and I think I was fascinated by the public health aspects of cardiovascular disease and how important of an illness it was in our country. And then I sort of left it aside. And then right now where you are, I was taking my cardiovascular pathophysiology course. I really just fell in love with the elegance of the heart as a pump and with flow through tubes, through the vessels and smooth muscles and relaxation and the elegance of the cascades that were, were occurring on the cellular level and how I could see it and I could feel it. Not that there's anything wrong with the kidney. I love the kidney. We couldn't use diuretics without it, but I just something about being able to see and touch aspects of the cardiovascular system, I think from an intellectual standpoint was when I became interested. When I thought I could came later. That came after I met folks at Brigham and Women's Hospital and saw people that kind of looked like me as cardiologists. And maybe if I had seen some oncologists, I would have been an oncologist instead. But I met some incredible cardiologists that you may know. So David Aguilar is currently a cardiologist in Texas. Dr. Eldrin Lewis is now the chief of cardiology at a small hospital on the West Coast somewhere. Pablo, do you know where that could be? I don't know. I think it, it rhymes with Manford, I think. Okay, okay, okay. But that I'm not so really sure. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Michelle Albert, who, again, an illustrious cardiologist at UCSF and president-elect of the American Heart Association. So I, I was very lucky. So that was the time where it changed from I'm interested to I, I could potentially do this. And it was really incredibly empowering to be around them. They just happened to be interested in cardiology and happened to be the mentors that I was able to kind of latch onto as a medical student. So that's when it really first hit that, you know, I kind of like this and, and I think I can do this. And I was really encouraged right off the bat by the three of them that this was a, a potential career for me. But I will say I tried not to do it, believe it or not. I was interested in health disparities and I thought, well, maybe I could be a generalist and a hospitalist and study health disparities. And maybe I could be an endocrinologist and do it that way. Or maybe I could be a cardiologist. And here's where the information comes through. I was almost afraid of being a cardiologist. I was thinking, I'm never going to see my family. I'm always going to be on call. I don't know that I can do this. So I did have some doubt. So that's the reason I actually didn't apply straight off. And that's why, why I got the opportunity to do a, an MPH after residency. But I was lucky through mentorship to be able to fill the void, to be able to realize that cardiology really is an incredible career that affords you the ability to really design in, in the kind of lifestyle that you'd like. So if I wanted to, I'm sure I could have joined a, a private practice cardiology of seven and be on call one in seven. I could, as I did, maybe join a, an academic practice where you have the privilege of having fellows and residents that are taking care of patients at night. And, you know, I could have been an interventionalist or EP, but, you know, I decided to take the general cardiology imaging education path. And I sort of realized that you have to love what you're doing, that if you'd rather maybe be working a few more hours loving what you're doing than working less hours and really not enjoying what you did. So I think it was those insights that came. And then I think when I realized really what an incredible field cardiology is, like I, I can't really think of any other field where you, know, you can be a primary care physician, you know, you, you can do preventive cardiology and really focus on that aspect of things. You can be a radiologist doing cardiovascular imaging. You can be a proceduralist. You can deal with patients similar to an oncologist that are maybe end-stage heart failure. You can deal with transplants, vascular. It is just such a rich field that you could really find anything that you want. Basic science, health policy, public health. Now, I would argue that there is not another field that gives you really so many opportunities to practice clinically, to do research, to do policy as cardiovascular disease does. Fidencio, you are originally from Los Angeles, California, and you're born from parents that immigrated from Mexico, neither of whom had the opportunity to pursue higher education, but yet they instilled in you a passion for that. Can you tell us more about what was, that was like? They did. I think that, you know, as I had mentioned, my parents are both from small towns in central Mexico, and they came to the U.S. as many immigrants do in search of a better life. And, you know, my dad was a migrant farm worker for many years until he settled in LA and became a factory worker. My mom was sent over to live and help a family in Los Angeles, which is where they met. 
And I think with both of my parents, just, you know, outside of a career, but just life, I think that from them, I learned the value of hard work, you know, where my dad just really worked tirelessly. And he would always say that uh, nobody can take your education away from you. And, and he said that, you know, he never wanted me to work as hard as he had to work. You know, he wanted me to have that better life. And he definitely has given me that privilege. And it was always for the, for the help of others. I think regardless of how much or how little we had, my parents were always incredibly generous. We were always the house that would welcome neighbors or the family would come or somebody needed a place to stay or relatives came to visit. It was always just a, an incredible generosity of giving of yourself. You know, and, and I think if we kind of take away all the technology and trials and everything else about medicine, it really is about that. It really is about giving of, of yourself to another individual, of uh, generously giving your expertise, your empathy to care for another, where, where there's nothing that you're specifically getting out of that relationship, so to speak. It, it's not to your benefit, it's really to the benefit of, of others. So I think that's where that initial interest in medicine, that altruism came from for me. And I was very fortunate. I think my job as a kid was always to do well in school, was to really study hard for that fulfillment of a better life that my parents came to the United States for. And as I mentioned, sort of that, that superpower of being able to speak English, it sort of stuck at the doctor's office. I think those two things kind of melded where I've wanted to help others and what better way to help others. And, you know, as a kid, you think of taking care of a sick person, a more sophisticated conception is of taking care of someone at their most vulnerable when they're, when they're not well. I think that over the years, I think there was no really better way uh, of being able to, to do that than being, for me, than being a physician. And you sort of go about it blindly a little bit. I think, I don't know when I actually realized what it took to be a physician. I know that some kind of medical school, I probably didn't know about the ins and outs of residency or fellowship until maybe late in medical school. But that's, I think, where you sort of get help from friends. You need to get help from those mentors where my parents took me and still take me far. They took me to make me the, the empathetic, caring physician that I am, but I needed the help of others to, to continue down that road. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. And that actually made me remember um, my dad as well, who always used to say, the only heritage you're going to get from me is your education. So <laughs> it was like, I, we have no money. The only thing you're going to get is education. So he would always get me books for gifts, etc. So it sounds like pretty similar guys we have as parents. I have two questions. One is, did you ever start calling people by their first names? Because I still have that Latin problem and I can't. I cannot call anyone by their first names. But actually, my real question is, as the famous quote says, the one who only knows about medicine does not even know about medicine. And I wanted to ask you what your interests outside medicine were. Absolutely. So, you know, at, at Brigham and Women's Hospital, the culture is you call me by your first name, especially within the medicine residency. And it just took me a long time. There were certain people like, I, I will say, even if Dr. Joe Lascalzo hears this podcast to this day, I was a chief resident under Dr. Lascalzo. So it was always Dr. Lascalzo, Dr. Lascalzo. So to this day, it is not Joe, it is, is Dr. Lascalzo. <laughs> Same thing with my mentor, Dr. Alvin Poussant, who again is never Alvin, but, but Dr. Poussant. But I'm glad that the Brigham created just that sense of community. We really are colleagues, which is an incredible community to be a part of. Interest outside. So lately, it really has revolved around family, to be honest. My wife, Anna, she's a superintendent at Boston Public Schools and assistant superintendent. And I have three amazing kids, Amelia, who's going to turn 16 next month, Joaquin, who's 14, and Mateo, who's turning 12 next month. And that really is the center for me. And, and things revolve around that. Even just to think of the COVID pandemic, doing things together, we would more so at the beginning than now, but cooking is a big deal in our family. So whether it's baking something or trying to cook a Dominican recipe or cooking a Mexican recipe and, and Joaquin, who's the middle kiddo, is the more of the cook and being able to share that with him. And my daughter is the baker and being able to share that with her and then kind of getting together as a family and doing it. We would have some TV shows that I'm sure everybody else would watch and just to have that family time together. 
Before the pandemic, we enjoyed traveling a lot. Love road trips. I don't know why I like to drive so much, but our two memorable road trips were Florida to Boston twice. We did the easternmost states once, and then we went went over and did that. And you know, you're in the car, and I don't know if any of you have, oh, you, Dan, you have children. I don't know if any, anybody else has children, but there's something special about riding with kids in the car. You have their attention. They're a captive audience and they have no choice but to kind of, you know, tell you their stories of their day and you can hear about that and, you know, share experiences with them, especially when you're on a road trip. And my wife did an amazing job for our first Florida road trip and that there were no devices. So coming up with games and things to play. Before the pandemic, again, we were blessed to be able to travel a lot. And we went to Spain for February break. And then we got to go to Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, which is where my wife's family is from, from the Dominican Republic. So the kids got to see part of their heritage. And then Christmas, we got to visit grandparents in California. It's something really special about being able to see the world with your family. Yeah, I completely resonate with the importance of family. Family is also incredibly important to me. And I just want to give a shout out to both of my parents who are actually listening to this webinar right now. Yay! Um, Big shout out. And I know I would not be where I am without their constant support and, and belief in me, even when I didn't believe in myself. Who are your parents? So they're listed under Eduardo Malacan, but it's my mom and dad. And your parents are English and Spanish speakers? Yes, yes. They were born in Mexico, immigrated when they were adults. Excellent. Well, both of them, just an incredible congratulations. I I have just met Karen myself, and I, I just all feel proud, and I'm sure that your pride, I think, is, you know, a Latina MD-PhD student at one of the most premier medical schools in the country is no small feat. Really, it, it's a family victory, and I'm sure the two of you are just beaming and just continue to beam. It really it is an amazing accomplishment, and, you know, I think we all look forward to, to seeing Karen blossom. And, you know, if Karen ever happens to be in the Boston or Harvard area, she will have a home with all of us here. And I'm sure she has excellent mentors and folks that are looking out for her at Stanford. But, you know, a true congratulations. It's just an extraordinary feat. And, you know, we're, we're all beaming with pride for Karen. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. So I have two questions. One's a bit sillier. So I read that you used to play basketball in high school and that one of the reasons you decided to apply to Stanford for college was because they were in the Pac-10. So my first question is, what was your personal max vertical leap? Oh my gosh, not high enough. I think it was probably, you know, I think it's a classic first generation story. So, you know, I, when I was in high school, I applied to the UC schools, the University of California schools, was a huge basketball fan. And there was, I really liked Adam Keith, who was kind of this tall, redheaded center that played for Stanford. And he wound up playing in the pros for a little bit. And I said, all right, I guess I, you know, that's one of the California schools. I'll put them on my list. And then I remember I applied for Harvard because it was Harvard and I'd heard of it before. So maybe those are my probably about 10 to 11 schools that I probably should have researched more. You know, there was no web. So you just kind of heard of things. So I thought, okay, I'll apply to Stanford. And that's where I went. And the reason I decided to go there is because I was hosted during the preview week by the manager of the basketball team. So he had the key to Maples Pavilion, which is where they have all of their basketball games. So we got to play a midnight basketball game at Maples Pavilion. So I was sold on Stanford, and that's the reason that I went. So thanks to Adam Keefe. I doubt he is listening, but a combination of Adam Keefe and my host at the preview weekend was the reason I wound up going to Stanford. That's awesome. And the last question I have is, what is the achievement you're most proud of? I know you have many, but if you had to pick one that stands out or sticks out to you. That is a great question. I think there are multiple. I think it's hard to say. And I sort of alluded to a little bit. I think the greatest achievement is that look in my patient's eyes when they just, they feel that trust from you that you're going to take care of them. And it's that same look that you get from a student's eyes when they feel listened to and, the, and they know that you understand and, and that you're here to help them. So I think that to me, those individual connections are, are the greatest achievement. And I think one other one really sticks out. I remember actually crying about this one. I had just gotten my official letter that I had my first faculty job at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And just this rush of emotion that all these years that my parents sacrifice of coming to this country, their sacrifices of putting us through schools, the challenges that you faced going through college and medical school, all the training that you did, and I'd made it. Graduations were very special. 
But that was it, that all of the years of sacrifice that this kid of Mexican immigrants was going to be a cardiologist at Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, that all of the shoulders that I've stood on were there with me. And that was just an incredibly powerful moment. And it just kind of hit. I remember driving down Route 9 and it was like, oh man, you know, I, I made it. And not just me, but I've brought everyone with me. And now my work begins where I need to help others do the same. Oh my goodness. Yeah, this this is incredible. I mean, what a wonderful way to start these series. I'm just speechless. It's just been incredibly inspiring talking to you, Fidencio. It's great to catch up with you again and get to find out more about you and ask you all these important questions about the topic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you everyone for joining us tonight and talking to us through the chat and for everyone that's been putting up this event. This is incredible. Thank you very much. And again, really an incredible honor to be here with all of you. Thank you for, for asking and for allowing me to share a little bit of my story. You know, I asked Pablo to close and thank everyone because I was getting a little choked up earlier. I was working hard to hold back my tears because this is live and it's on video. But before we close, I just want to say, Karen, clearly you were born to do great things. But one of them, I think, is to become a cardio nerd. So if and hopefully when you decide to go into cardiology, please get in touch. Yes. You do. <laughs> in fact, yeah. I think Fatima has to talk to her tomorrow. Yes. No, I'm super excited to be part of the family. Definitely going to be here. Welcome. Yeah, I'm going to be here at Sanford for at least the next two to three years. So I'm going to be working hard on this. And you know, <laughs> you know, Brigham has a pretty nice cardiology fellowship, Maria, huh? Yeah. It's the, <laughs> you know, no, no offense, Pablo, but uh, I think it's the best. We have Fidencio and a medicine residency too. So we'll be around. Yeah, Karen, this, we want this you recruitment here. passion is amazing. <laughs> and I'm just, I hope that I hope that Karen's parents just muted themselves so they're not hearing this recruitment to the East Good Coast. Way. Well, I, I actually spent my undergraduate years in Boston. And did. Yeah, I, I went to Harvard for undergrad. So Oh, so then you come home. Come back mm-hmm. home. To my parents won't be pleased about me leaving again, but you can bring them. Yeah, hear that, mom and dad? You guys can move to Boston. <laughs> I'm Melissa Wood, and I'm the governor of the Massachusetts chapter of the American College of Cardiology. And we are so proud of our colleague, Dr. Fidencio Saldana, who shared his story in this really exciting podcast. Dr. Saldana has been in Massachusetts for quite a long time. However, as you heard in his story, really has roots from far, far away. And his course and his inspirational story and his achievements in the field of not only sharing his story, but bringing those from diverse backgrounds to cardiology is quite remarkable. In his role at the Harvard Medical School, he has really served as an anchor for the medical students as they progress through their four years and has certainly been a welcome face to many. We're so proud of all that he has done and continues to do, not only for the medical school, but for cardiology and for medical education in general. His impact really is felt locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. I was so excited to hear him mention the name of Dr. Fatima Rodriguez as one of his former trainees. The Massachusetts chapter of the ACC was so fortunate to host an event in February of this year in which Dr. Rodriguez spoke. We designed this event really to address disparities in care and to educate the members of our chapter who attended the event. The title was Eradicating Disparities in Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Patients with CV Conditions, and we were incredibly fortunate to really have a dream team of speakers, Dr. Michelle Albert, Dr. Rodriguez, that I mentioned earlier, Dr. Rachel Bond, and Dr. Sherry Burnett Bowie, who is actually from Massachusetts General Hospital, spoke about cardiovascular disease and how we can really work to reduce the disparities. We are also joined by Nancy Didia, who spoke to us from Beringer Ingelheim, where she is a chief diversity officer. And it was so interesting to hear of all the things that are being done, not only in our hospitals and our academic medical centers, but also in industry and how industry can partner with those of us in academic medicine to really reach a larger audience and to expand care to our patients who need it most. I'm also very proud to announce that this fall, October 30th to be exact, we will be hosting an in-person 
as well as virtual hybrid program entitled Cardiovascular Care of the Pregnant Patient. This is being co-led by Dr. Nandita Scott and Dr. Doreen DeFerrier from my institution, but really be, will be directed to fellows, medical trainees, and early career cardiologists who want to learn more about how we can care for our pregnant patients. And I bring that up because I think we all recognize that the maternal mortality in the United States with regard to pregnant patients is at an unacceptably high rate. And Black women are significantly affected by this really shocking situation. So we're hoping that this program will really help with the education. Personally, I have reached out to the members of our council of the ACC in Massachusetts and many of my members on a one-by-one basis really to ask them to serve as mentors to underrepresented trainees, whether medical students, residents, fellows, early or even mid-career individuals to really lend a hand and help build their careers. Especially, we want to reach out to those who are thinking about a career in, in cardiology to show them what a rewarding and exciting career cardiology can be. So again, it was such a pleasure to hear Dr. Saldana share his story, and I look forward to speaking to you again on Cardio Nerds. I am Eduardo Malacón, Karen's father. And I am Mercedes Malacón, Karen's mother. We want to thank Dr. Saldana for being an incredible mentor to unrepresented students and trainees and for his very inspiring dedication to help Spanish-speaking patients. We are very proud of Karen and are so grateful that she has mentors like Dr. Saldana and everyone else here to help her with her medical journey. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.